Okay, so we're in week four. Tonight is Culture's Assault on Christianity, the Church's Response. This series considers Culture's Assault on Christianity. We've been looking at that all four weeks, right? And the Church's proper response to this assault in an attempt to equip you to fight and win this constant war of diligence between the people that belong to two different universal kingdoms, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan. So we'll talk about two kingdoms later. Now remember, I've said this every week. I'm going to say it again this final week. We don't fight the culture. We fight the enemy's influence that we find in the culture. We're not mad because you can have good culture. You can have bad culture. You can have good culture. So it's not the culture itself that's the problem. Kind of like money. Money is amoral. It's not good or bad. Magnifies who you already are. It magnifies your character. So we want to equip you to fight in this battle between these two kingdoms. And we don't fight the culture. We fight the enemy's influence in the culture. We're not mad at people who don't have the truth. We love these people by sharing the truth with them. Our enemy is not the people in our culture. It's the kingdom of darkness. Ephesians 6 goes into that. We'll look at this one more time tonight. And it's influence over those people. So please don't confuse the two. In this battle, you're not wanting to win an argument. You're wanting to win a soul or a person. In week one, we looked at where we came from as a nation. We looked at how we got here, things that shaped our culture where we are today. Week two, we looked at the culture's tactics. Week three, we looked at the culture's content. And there was a good bit of overlap between week two and three. And tonight, we're going to look at the church's response. Those of us who know Jesus Christ do need to respond, and we cannot respond with silence. That's not an option. So how does the Bible tell us to respond? Not how does some other outside movement tell us to respond. How does the Bible? Our primary book for this series, Big Shocker, is the Bible. But there are a few other books that will help us navigate this topic that I've been using and tapping into, referencing, quoting from, and that's number one. I've mentioned these each week. By the way, if you miss any of the weeks, you can jump on uh, kelview.podbean.com. If you go to kelview.com, go to sermons, go down to the audio, click on our church name in the audio, and that'll take you to the Podbean website. We have everything from this series and going even further, way further back than that. So you can go listen to any of those. The other three books we're going to be uh, looking at and considering is We Will Not Be Silenced, Erwin Lutzer, Fault Lines, a guy named Vody Bauckham, and we're going to see a couple short clips from him tonight. It, he's from America, but right now he's teaching in, a, um, in Africa, in an African, Christ, African Christian university. And then Letter to the American Church, Eric Metaxas. With the darkness our culture faces, silence is not an option. Our response is critical to the recovery of this nation. Okay? Jesus said in Matthew chapter 12 that every kingdom, every city, or every house that is divided against itself cannot stand. So the cultural Marxism, and we've talked about this the previous weeks. If if you don't know what I mean by that, uh, just back up, listen to those other weeks. The cultural Marxism that's trying to be implemented in this culture, by definition, divides us into false groups. We'll look at that. So that we will each fight each other and fall, and then a savior figure can arise and seize control out of that chaos. That's the strategy. That's the plan. Marxism has to do that. If we become and remain a nation that cannot agree, we don't have to agree on everything. We never will agree on everything. But if we cannot become and remain a nation that can agree to follow the basic structure of our founding, we will fall. It's just a matter of time. 
And again, I've said this, on this earth, there is only one group of people that God uses whose message shows to Satan's kingdom of darkness the truth of God's wisdom and its application, and that's the local church. That's God's chosen, if you want to use today's term, social justice movement. When Satan gained a foothold, let's back up to the 1920s and 30s, okay? Satan gained a foothold in Germany in the 1920s into the 30s. Adolf Hitler and his circle, who was very involved in the occult, which is a multidimensional doorway, if you didn't know this about the occult activity, Ouija boards, witchcraft, Wicca, things like that, is a multidimensional doorway into the kingdom of darkness. They were very involved in that. They also feared Hitler, one group, the church. He feared the church. Part of Hitler's test run for his plan to deal with the Jews and lead more tyrannically was called, the German word is Kristallnacht, or the night of broken glass is the English translation, the night of broken glass. November 1938, the Nazi party coordinated the mass vandalism of Jewish homes, Jewish cemeteries, Jewish synagogues, and Jewish businesses in an attempt to make the citizens of Germany believe that the population was against the Jews. But there was another very clever purpose They wanted to see the answer to the question, how will the church respond? Will the churches respond at all? There was some response, but not much, and not very consistent. Satan knew then that he had the green light to finish what he started way back in Egypt. This is not new. This did not start with Hitler. Way back in Egypt, and then later in Sinai, and then in Canaan, and then in Persia in the book of Esther, and then in Bethlehem. And all the other times in history whose number is possibly too high for us to even count, Satan had the green light to try one more time to destroy the Jewish people. If you look at the news and turn it on, he's still trying now. The church's widespread silence to the night of broken glass in Germany, the German churches, even the Protestant churches, was a large part of the equation that allowed the final solution. In our response to Satan's influence in our own culture, Will we pray? Will we act however God leads us to be salt and light and preserve some resemblance of sanity? By pres- How do we do that? By preserving God's character and desires in this culture. So a guy named Eric Metaxas was host, one of the author of one of the three books we're considering in this series, was hosted by a local church in California to speak to them about his newest book and about this issue. So here is just a couple minutes long video clip from that. There were 18,000 Lutheran pastors in Germany at that time, 18,000. The, the Nazis very quickly brought their kind of r- racial view of the world and every other thing to bear in government. They, they took away people's liberties. I mean, it was just dramatic, kind of like what we saw with COVID, just unbelievable governmental overreach and just pushed and pushed and pushed. A number of pastors stood up and said, uh, no. And they wrote this thing called the Barman Declaration, where they made clear that the government, whether it's the Nazi government or any has no right to tell us we are the church of Jesus Christ. So they write the Barman Declaration. About 6,000 of the 18,000 pastors sign it. By 1935, two years later, the the government had been so wicked and had bullied people that many in the church, just like now, who had been initially brave, said, "Uh -uh, we're going to back up. We don't want any trouble. 
We don't want any trouble. So by 1935, 3,000 of the 18,000 pastors were standing strong, only 3,000. On the other end of the spectrum, there were 3,000 that were 100% pro-Hitler. It's kind of like, you know, you want to talk about it like a totally woke church today. So there are 3,000 maniacs, totally pro-Hitler maniacs among the Lutheran pastors. So 3,000 complete nuts, 3,000 heroes. But here's the key, and it's why I call the chapter 12,000 pastors. In the middle were 12,000 pastors who said, we're not going to choose. We're going to sit back. We're going to sit this one out. We'll let you guys fight it out. But we, uh, we don't want any trouble. And we think we have a biblical mandate for not being involved in politics. So we're going to be silent. We don't want to be divisive. We just want to preach the gospel. And you want to ask them, what useless, dead gospel were you preaching in your church that you did not speak out and take sides in a situation that would lead millions of women and children to their deaths in the death camps? And that's just one example of the nightmare unleashed by the Nazis because of the silence of the church. So our silence whenever Satan's influence in our culture is clear and evident is not a biblical option. Now the final solution, they didn't know all of where that was going to end up, but they saw the beginnings of it. And like I said, the night of broken glass was the test case. So the, those Lutheran pastors didn't have all the information yet to know, okay, Auschwitz, where uh, the mentally inept and the elderly are currently being killed, that's going to be converted. It's still going to be a kill factory, but now it's just going to be Jews running through there by the millions, um, all the different places where they, where they killed them. Uh, they didn't know all that. They didn't see all that coming. So you say, well, how could they have known? You know, they don't have a crystal ball. They couldn't have seen the future to know to stop this. But they did see many, many warning signs the night of broken glass was one of the big ones where they just bullied the Jews, basically. And the broken glass name comes from the storefronts that were glass, and they busted up all the Jewish stores, and so the glass was broken in the streets. That's where the name comes from. So our silence, whenever Satan's influence in our culture is that clear, is not a biblical option, not a legitimate one. So that's the introduction. Let's look at the church's response, that section in your notes that says the church's response Satan's influence can be more easily and more often seen in our culture recently. I'll agree with you if you were to say that. But his attempt to manipulate and lie to us and with those lies destroy us is not new at all. It's ancient. He's been there the whole time using any means he can to steal, to kill, and to destroy. That's exactly what the Bible says he does in John 10, verse 10. John 10, 10, steal, kill, and destroy. That's what he does. It's his function. Jesus says that. Our job as the church in our culture is, one of the things is this. Look at, with me at 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 5. You can turn there with me or you can just listen. That's fine too. 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 5. If you're taking notes, 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 5. Our job in the culture, 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 5. Even though we walk in the flesh, Paul's talking about physical and spiritual. He's contrasting them. Even though we walk in the flesh, the physical, we don't war according to the flesh. The weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but they're mighty in God for pulling down strongholds. How? Verse 5. 
casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. A lot of people love to focus on the second phrase, bringing every thought into captivity, and we do need to do that. That's part of our growth, as part of our discipleship, but sometimes we miss the first part of that verse, casting down arguments that exalts itself against God. So we correct arguments that exalt themselves against or over God. And Satan's been doing this from the beginning. That's what got him thrown out of heaven, <laughs> remember? So what are some examples of this? How are we called by God to respond? We'll look at four things tonight, okay? Before we look at the first one, there's one caveat I just want to tell you real quickly as we walk through this whole entire thing that I was reminded of. And um, nobody in this church, uh, nobody that any of you know, I was talking to somebody not too long ago and um, a little more in age, more advanced in age. (laughs) Wisdom is not pessimism. This person had, no matter what you said to instill hope in a situation, you know, let's say, let's say uh, uh, election fraud. If there's election fraud in your area, the honest people need to go serve as poll watchers. That's a legitimate function that you can go do as a volunteer and go do that. Don't just say the sky is falling. Go do something about it. And everything that I would say to insert hope, this person would um, would, would insert pessimism. Yeah, but this, yeah, but wisdom is not pessimism, okay? I realize the longer you live and you see things fail that it's easy to get pessimistic or doubtful or, you know, flaw-focused. I get it. I tend to be that way too. <laughs> wisdom is not pessimism. Those are two very different things, okay? So um, bear that in mind as we walk through these four things. Okay, the first thing, racism or ethnic division, Racism is not even the right word. We're one race. I mean, hello. But anyway, we'll look at that. Racism or ethnic division. Even with this first issue that the church should be an influence against, we have to stop and ask ourselves what our user's manual is. What is our user's manual as the church to influence the culture? The Bible, God's word. I heard a couple different answers. Same thing. Yeah. One of the three books we are including in our final series is called Fault Lines by Vody Bauckham. Okay, it's one of the three that I mentioned. In the video clip we're about to see, he uses two terms that I need to define for us because he went uh, Southwestern where I went to seminary. And seminary graduates love to big, use big words sometimes and then not explain them. Just to, I don't know why. Uh, so number one, he says he uses the phrase a new hermeneutic. Hermeneutic means a method of interpretation. That's all it means, how to interpret something. In this case, usually we say how to interpret scripture, but in this case, he's using it to how to interpret sin, okay? Hermeneutic. The second term he uses is a new canon, not boom, firing the canon, which when I went to A&M and we went to the football games, every time we'd score a touchdown, which wasn't very often, we would fire the canon. And I always loved when we played Baylor because they used to bring their bear on the field, and we'd fire that cannon. That bear would drag the guy that had him on the leash across the sidelines. It was hilarious. I think they quit bringing their bear to our games eventually, but you'd think they would have learned after the first time. Not C-O-N-N-O-N, C-A-N-O-N. Not two N's, but one. C-A-N-O-N. A canon is a collection of texts or letters or books. In this case, a new collection of sociology books. Normally, we use the word canon to discuss the scripture. What books are in, what books are out, and why? What's the measuring stick we use? That's what canon means. 
In this context, he's going to use the word to talk about a new connection, a collection of sociology books. So listen to what Vody Bauckham says in this really short clip, just a couple minutes long, about what the church's guidebook or user's manual should be. In the midst of all of this, in the midst of these discussions about um, social justice and race and sex and you know, all these other things. At the end of the day, the question is, what does God say about us? What does God say about us? And is what God says about us sufficient? And when we start talking about who we are, In Christ. When we start talking about our unity in Christ, our our brotherhood and our relationships, do we believe that the Bible is sufficient in that regard? And one of the scariest things about all of this talk is that we're beginning to see a new hermeneutic develop. Where now sin is institutional as opposed to being in the heart of man. We're we're reading things differently here. And not only that, but we're starting to develop a new canon. To where if... You're not seeing things rightly on these issues. People are not saying you need to go to this text. They're saying you need to read Divided by Faith. You, you need to read Ta-Nehisi Coates. You need to read, right? If you're not getting this, then here's a list of books that you need to read in order to then be able to read the scriptures rightly as it relates to our unity with one another in Christ. That is a problem. Because I believe that the Bible is absolutely sufficient, not just inerrant, but absolutely sufficient for all matters of faith and practice And how we deal with one another across ethnicities is a matter of faith and practice. The Bible is sufficient for that. Again, I am not arguing that we shouldn't read other things. I've quoted other things over the course of this weekend. But the Bible is sufficient. He goes on in this sermon to say that we should never let sociology override and govern our theology. And that's perfect. He has this other set of sociology books. These explain it the way you need to understand it. God doesn't. And you need to let these books govern and and establish how you interpret scripture. He adds that many of the texts that social justice movements use are now referencing as our new canon or set of books certain sociology books and not the scriptures. 
That's why on, on night one, I said, you don't join Black Lives Matter. Is the phrase true, those three words? Absolutely, those three words are valid and true, 100%. But the movement doesn't, this is not what governs that movement. Other sociology books govern that movement. We can't do that. This book already says Black Lives Matter and everyone else. So we use the Bible to critique other books, not other books to critique the Bible. Our proper response as the church hinges on our getting that right. So as we represent God, we don't follow anything that is not a biblical mandate, a biblical instruction for us. I mean, look, the Bible tells us to do enough already as it is. Do you need more things? I mean, hello. We don't. And, and the Bible is sufficient. What, he, what it mean, he means there is that it does cover these issues. It's not silent on these issues. Exodus this is under the Old Covenant, not today, but Exodus under the Old Covenant, God said you, have, you apply the death penalty, capital punishment, if someone is found, not the slavery, because the typical slavery you see in the Old Testament is the slavery of financial bondage. You, I owe them $10,000, I work for them till I pay it off. Sometimes what you saw was what you still see today in some countries, kidnapping. You actually take the person and force them to do something, that type of slavery. Well, in Exodus it says, That's a capital punishment crime. Anyone who kidnaps for the purpose of slavery or anyone found with someone in their possession who's been kidnapped, they got killed. (laughs) Don't tell me the Bible doesn't speak to this stuff. It was serious to God in the old, Old Covenant. Satan's tactic with this issue of racism is to reframe the issue. Instead of what the Bible would say, he reframes and separates us into separate artificial classes, white, non white basically false categories of groups. Scripture, the problem with that is what? The problem with that is Scripture does the opposite with ethnicities. Go with me to Galatians chapter 3. So if you're in 2 Corinthians, hang a right. Go to Galatians chapter 3, verse 26 through 28. Um, If you you can't get there quickly, you just want to write it down. I'm going to fly tonight, so um, I'm going to try to go quickly tonight to get us all through this in a good time. Galatians 3, 26 through 28. For you are all sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ. What's the context? What's he talking about? Justification. Faith in Christ. Salvation. For as many of you, for as, many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. We're in Christ. We're saved. In that context, verse 28, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. I've heard that phrase misused to say men and women are alike in every way, even in role. No, God designates specific roles that are different. That's a misuse of this passage. This passage is not talking about roles. This passage is talking about justification or what we call salvation. There's neither male nor female, for you are all one. How are you all one? The next phrase qualifies, in Christ Jesus, in your salvation. This is what he's saying. Now let's look at Ephesians. If you're in Galatians, it's real easy. Just hang a right to the one, uh, to the right one book. Ephesians chapter 2, 8 through 18. If you don't have time to get there, just write it down. Ephesians 2, 8 through 18. For by grace, uh, this is the passage that uh, Vodibachum was preaching in the clip you just saw. For by grace, you have been saved through faith. What's What's he talking about? Salvation, justification. And that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God. It's not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship. We're created in Christ Jesus. In Christ Jesus, there's that phrase again, for good works, 
which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That was his desire. That was his design. Therefore, remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision made in the flesh by hands, there's these two separate groups. But under the old covenant, these two separate groups were not artificial. They were actually God-ordained, God-designed. That at that time, verse 12, you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, so in your salvation under the new covenant, you who once were far off, Gentiles, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. He brings everyone near. So basically, you only had two groups. You had Jews, God's special covenant people under the old covenant, and non-Jews, everyone else. Didn't matter what ethnicity they were. All other ethnicities except for Jews, the Semitics were non-Jews, they were Gentiles. For, so, so this is encompassing all ethnicities. For he himself, Jesus, is our peace who has made both one. He's broken down the middle wall of separation. That was there at the temple, the court of the Gentiles. They weren't allowed past that point. Having abolished in his flesh the enmity, the, the hostility, the fighting, that is the law of commandments uh, contained in ordinances uh, between us and God as well, uh, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace that he might reconcile them both to God in one body. You see this unity idea? One body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity between each other. And he came and preached peace to those who were far off and those who were near, Jew, uh, Gentile and Jew. Verse 18, for through him, Christ, we both, Jew and Gentile, everyone, we both have access by one spirit to the Father. So scripture under the new covenant does not divide us into artificial groups of, for example, what Marxism has to do, oppressors and the oppressed. Racial reconciliation is not something we have to achieve. It's already been achieved, fully accomplished by Jesus Christ himself. We don't have to achieve it. We simply have to learn to apply the reconciliation that's already been achieved by Jesus to our particular situation and apply it in our relationships with other people, particularly in the context of this passage, people of other ethnicities. So you see, the Bible's sufficient. It already speaks to this issue. You don't have to make up some, you don't have to go to some outside guidebook. But the enemy of our creator and savior has not only tried to blind us to the fact that this has already been achieved by Jesus, he also has deceived us into thinking we have to achieve reconciliation with other ethnicities on our own, by our own strength. You know what happens when you try to do something by your own strength? Yeah, I don't have to answer that for you, do I? I mean, you all know the answer. Looking to fix or resolve any cultural grievance or issue by any other means than the gospel is powerless and will make the issue worse, not better. So the unity we can have through the acceptance of the gospel is the church's response to racism or ethnic division. That's the first deal. Okay, second one. Second illustration, second example, the value of women. The value of women. Women have mostly been taken advantage of and exploited for most of human history. There's a few exceptions. There aren't very many. The Bible is not an instruction manual that tells us to belittle women. The Bible is actually the first book in human history to place real value on women elevate them right beside men, equal worth, equal value at the foot of the cross, and to protect them in a world that's ready to exploit them. 
Let's look at one more clip. Same guy, Vody Bauckham. As he addresses this idea, it's only about a minute long, that men, there's this idea going out there and it's absurd, that men invented marriage. Who invented marriage? By the way, if man invented marriage, man gets to define what it is, correct? The Supreme Court's tried to do that. Supreme Court does not understand that that's not a marriage. The Supreme Court does not get to define marriage. Who invented marriage? Who gets to define marriage? God does. We're not mad and yelling at those people who don't understand what marriage is. We want to reach them with the truth. But look, that's not marriage. If you, if you had, let me be explicit. If you had a same-sex couple get a divorce, that wouldn't even be a divorce. I mean, on paper it would be, but that's not a marriage. It's a mockery of marriage. God, and, and so for that person who is in that lifestyle or struggles with that or doesn't even struggle with it, just openly embraces it, we don't stiff arm. We say, look, God has something so much better for you. This is going to destroy and wreck your life. God has something so much better. I'm not sure what that is and the timing of it, but he has so much, something so much better. So let's watch this quick video clip, Vody Bauckham, one more time. He addresses this idea that men invented marriage to oppress women. His comment here, I think, is perfect. By, by the way, that one in and of it, on its face, that one is sheer folly. The idea that men invented marriage to oppress women. How did that meeting go? <laughs> hey guys, listen. At this point, um, we can just have all kind of exploits with whatever women we want. Um, they're the ones who get pregnant, we're not. Um, but I think that our ability to just be as promiscuous as we want while they get stuck with children doesn't quite oppress them enough. I think maybe we should marry one of them at a time. And somebody went, yeah, that'll show them. <laughs> Far from oppressing women, marriage actually protects women. Women are protected from the harshness of any culture that's without God's principles under the old covenant and also under the first covenant. And the same thing's true under the new covenant. Same thing's true today. Go with me. Let me show you what I mean. Go with me to Ephesians chapter 5. So Ephesians 5, 21 through 28. If you can't get there, that's fine. Just write it down. Ephesians 5, 21 through 28. I'm going to fly through this. I just want you to see God's design here. I start in 21, most of your Bible section off 22, but the verb submit is borrowed from 21. The verb submit actually does not appear in the Greek text at all in verse 22. It's borrowed from 21. It is in there, but it's borrowed from 21. Verse 21, submitting to one another. So wait, men and women are to submit to one another? Well, in a sense. In what sense? In the fear of God. In the way that before God, in the fear of, I know he's, he's, watching me, and how I treat my spouse. We submit to one another in that way, in the fear of God. But then he says there is a unique role, there is a unique authority structure. Verse 22, wives to your own husbands as to the Lord. That's all the Greek says. It borrows the word submit from verse 21. Wives submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. The husband is the head of the wife, just as Christ is the head of the church. Is Jesus, and, and, and it says, and he is the savior of the body. So is Jesus any less the God than the Father? No, equally God. Equal worth, equal value, but is there a submission structure there? Yes. The, Jesus said, I'm here to do the Father's plan. 
Lord, not, as what is, not what I want, but what you want. He says that in the Garden of Gethsemane. If he doesn't say yes to the Father's plan in the Garden, none of us have any hope of salvation. It's because he submitted to the plan, okay? Now, that was perfect. We're not perfect. Yes, granted, but his design is still perfect and ideal. And for us, it's not some old construct. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, So wives submit to your own husbands, but then he inserts this different word. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. What did he just say? Sacrificial. You put her needs before yours. In my wedding, when I do wedding ceremonies, I I even quote that and I say, you put her desires before yours. And then I add, within reason, ladies. (laughs) There you go. Good little caveat. You put her desires before yours. So that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of the water by the word. That he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot, wrinkle, anything like that, but that she should be holy and without blemish. In this way, husbands should love their own wives as their own bodies, because he who loves his wife loves himself. That's true. And for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as the Lord does the church, because we're members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones." And then in verse 33, he says, oh, we're to stop at 28. 33, he says, nevertheless, let each one of you in particular so love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So he, he wraps it up and brings it home again. This is not describing a domineering misuse of authority that's given to the husband inside of marriage. This is describing a sacrificial, did you hear it? Sacrificial, selfless use of authority to protect the wife from the harshness of the world. What about single women. Well, they could stay under their father's protection. Also, the local church's protection, that's part of our job. What about widows? Well, look at James 1.27. So if you're in Ephesians, you hang a right. You listen to James 1.27, or if you just want to write it down, some of you may have this verse. If you grew up in Awana, you have this verse memorized. James 1.27, pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this. Well, what's this? I want to hear what this is. To visit, widows, uh, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. So why are widows included on this list with orphans? Because they need the protection of the church. They're out there. They're, they're vulnerable. If the church doesn't step in and protect them, who is there to do that? In fact, if you go to India, even today, there's a Krupa widows ministry that one of our missionaries in India does for the widows because culturally in many areas of, of India, I don't understand their whole caste system. It's extremely complex and there's a lot of different layers to the pecking order of society. But in their caste system, in a lot of areas, when the widows are there, when their husband dies, they're just chunked out into the street. They're homeless. They're literally left to beg for their food. They don't have anywhere to sleep. And so one of the things this does is is, is take them in and feed them and take care of them, get them on their feet, get them doing some sort of trade, having some sort of nobility to their life, right? Because God's not okay with that. God is not okay with that. God is for the protection in the old covenant and in the new, the protection of women, the protection of any vulnerability that they're. Ladies, God wanting to protect you is not an insult to you. His protection is a clear statement of your incredible and measureless value as a person. What's the church's response to the exploitation of women? God calls us to value them and then therefore, because we do that, to protect them. Number three, oppression. 
Number three, oppression. Third example, third issue, third example that, that needs the church's response, oppression. There's an issue every single culture faces, and that's the issue of oppression, okay? This is a real issue. This is not a made-up issue. Marxism falsely defines it and then gives the false answer. That's in competition with God's solution, but it is, in and of itself, it is a real issue. It's a legitimate grievance. But the enemy will reframe it, and then he'll come up with his own answer. Again, it's in competition. Look one more time at James 1.27. If, if you're still there, uh, look one more time at it. James 1.27, pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows. So last time we just looked at widows, but let's look at both. To visit orphans and widows in their, what's the next word? Trouble or distress or pressure or suffering or what they're going through is what he's saying. God's word tells us to protect widows and orphans. Well, what's the category of poverty there? Well, the category, according to the Bible, not, not Marxism and re- redefining things, according to the Bible, it's a poverty of circumstance, not a poverty of choice. And the Bible actually differentiates. We've, we've already talked about that in our series. The Bible actually differentiates between those two. We looked at those two different passages. It's poverty of circumstance. It didn't choose to be a, a widow. Well, hopefully not. You didn't choose to be a widow. You didn't choose to be an orphan. It's a poverty of circumstance. It's not a poverty of choice where the person can work and there is a job there. They just don't want to work. They don't want to get off their rear end. Well, then Paul says about that, if anyone's not willing to work, he shouldn't eat. That's a great motivator to get to it, you know, get after it. God created us to work. Paul tells us something similar about the poor in Galatians 2, 9, and 10. So if you're in James, hang a left. Several letters go to Galatians, just the other side of Ephesians. If you don't want to flip there, just write down Galatians 2, 9 and 10. Paul tells us something similar about the poor. He said, when James, Peter, and John, he said, I went to go visit them in uh, you know, Jerusalem as the headquarters of Christianity at, the, at first. Not later, it's spread to Antioch and other areas, but uh, he goes to Jerusalem, he said, and he meets with these guys. He said, when James, Peter, and John, who seem to be pillars, you know, these guys are uh, well-known in the faith, they're the guys, they're pillars, perceived the grace that had been given to me, Paul speaking, they gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship that we should go to the Gentiles and, them to the, and they to the circumcised, the Jews. They desired only that we should remember the poor, the very thing which I also was eager to do. He said, I was eager to do that anyway. So yes, I was considering that. God already wanted me to do that. Here's Satan's reframing. Instead of the widow, orphan, or poor, he reframed it into make up the category. There's different terms that they use. Sometimes they use the term, which just on its face is insulting, I think. Non-white, they actually use that term, or unprivileged. Satan also reframes motive. That's another thing he reframes. He reframes motive. What's your motive for doing something? The motive he wants us to have in order to correct social justice issues is guilt. You should feel guilty because of what your ancestors did, and therefore, out of that guilt, you should have the motive to fix it. Is that God's motive? Is guilt God's motive? No. God's motive for us To have is the love of God put on display through the life and the message of Jesus Christ. It's not guilt, it's love. If you're motivated by guilt, that's not the message of the cross. 
The church is called to be motivated by love, the quality of love that acts for the benefit of its recipient based on the value that God assigns to them. That's what you see. And that's what you see when he told the husband to love his wife. It's exactly what you see. It's exactly what he's calling us to. Guilt is not the motive God calls us to follow as we take our faith to the culture around us. You take your guilt to the cross and you take your faith to the culture. That's it. That's not me. I stole that quote off someone. Everything good is stolen, by the way. No one ever first came up with it. You take your, but that's perfect. You take your guilt to the cross, you take your faith to the culture. You don't take your guilt to the culture. It's not going to be the right motive for you to fix. You're not even going to know what to fix. You're not going to have the right motive to fix it. It's not, it doesn't work. You take your guilt to the cross, faith to the culture. If you take your guilt anywhere except to the cross of Jesus Christ, who died to pay for that guilt, it's the only, the only solution for your guilt is right there, is in the cross. You'll only make things worse and be an influence for the kingdom of darkness if you take your guilt anywhere else other than the cross. There's another oppression that you'll find in every culture, spiritual oppression. Sometimes it's manifest physically. Sometimes it's just different mental things, but sometimes there's spiritual oppression that we see. If someone, uh, sometimes it gets mislabeled, but the Bible actually identifies it correctly. Listen to what Luke says in Luke chapter 4, verse 18. Luke chapter 4 verse 18. Listen to what Luke says. He quotes from the Old Testament, but Jesus is using this phrase and he's referring to himself. The first sermon he ever preaches in his home hometown, this is basically it. And it's pretty short because once the guys realize that he's saying he's the Messiah, they walk him to the edge of Nazareth uh, where he grew up. They walk him to the edge of Nazareth to a cliff and uh, they try to throw him off. <laughs> so this is, this is the response of Jesus' first sermon, not popular yet. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, Jesus says, because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. That word could be translated from the Greek, the unfortunate, those in tough times. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind. And then this phrase, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. So the Bible gives the church the solution to a serious problem that the culture didn't even know existed. Wait, there's demonic oppression sometimes weighing down on people? Culture has no clue about that. They think, they think that stuff is just fantasy horror movie, you know, the exorcist where the girl's head's spinning. By the way, that's based on a true story. It was a boy, not a girl. Head obviously did not spin. Um, I think he vomited some stuff, but probably not that much. And it's you, the, the open door, the entry was jacking around with a Ouija board. Um, this can be spiritual oppression of an individual or family, the failure to apply justice because of racism, individuals who are poor because of a circumstance beyond their control, someone being pushed around or taken advantage of or abused. All these things apply to what Jesus just said. I came to deal with that. I didn't come to ignore that. I came to deal with that. The response of the church to oppression in the culture must be framed and instructed by the word of God, the Bible. It has the correct framing to identify what's a true problem and what's not. Marxism has us chasing some legitimate grievances that are real problems, but many of them aren't even real. Just just make stuff up. Say, oh, this is a problem. So the response of the church has to be framed by the Bible. The Bible may not list every detail specific to a situation, 
But that's the job of the Holy Spirit, who inspired this to to begin with, to give us specific guidance in that moment on how to apply the biblical principle that speaks to whatever the issue is. And who are the only ones in the world who have that guide, the Holy Spirit, inside them to guide them? The church. Those of us who are bought by the blood of Christ. We're the only ones with the true answer. That doesn't make us, oh, look at me, I know everything. No, God knows everything, and we're simply pointing people to him, the source of wisdom. We're the only ones with the true answer. We don't always apply it perfectly. Why? Because we are are ourselves imperfect in our obedience to Scripture. But that doesn't negate Scripture's effectiveness to speak to any problem that a human being will ever face, ever. We as Christians, as the church, are imperfect vessels, but we do have a perfect resource of truth. So that's what we point people to. Even Paul, remember when he says, imitate me? That wasn't the end of his sentence, was it? What did he say? Imitate me as I imitate Christ. He was pointing them back to Christ. He wasn't just saying, I'm God and follow me. No. Number four, the fourth example, the fourth issue, the fourth example of something that needs uh, the church's response, corruption or misuse of authority. So this is our fourth and last thing. No matter what the authorities in our lives do, we must be respectful to them. I don't always like to hear that, but that's what God tells me, okay? My submission is not to what I think I like to hear, my submissions to God's word. If you take the example of government, there's different authorities out there. One of them is government. God honors that institution by telling the church to do certain things for it. Prayer is one of them. Go with me to 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 3. And if you don't want to go there, you can just write it down. 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 3. Prayer is one of them that God tells us to do. Therefore, I exert, first of all, that supplications, these are three different distinct things in the Greek, by the way. They're not all exactly the same word. Supplications, prayers, and intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, and specifically, we was talking about verse 2, for kings and all who are in authority. Why? So that we the church, may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. We don't try to be loud, in other words. We just, in Thessalonians, he says, work hard with your own hands and mind your own business. We try to be quiet. If God makes us loud, fine. God makes us loud. But hey, we just work, we serve, we love people. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God, our Savior. So God tells his church to pray for those who are in authority over them by going to a higher authority. Who's that? Him, God. See those three words, supplication, prayers, and intercessions? That's what that word intercession means in the Greek. It means going to a superior authority about something, going over their head. So we're praying for authorities, and they're over us in that sense, but we're going over their head to the ultimate authority to God. That's what he's saying with the word supplication. We must be respectful toward authority. Let's look at what Paul says in Romans 13. So if you're in 1 Timothy, hang a left. Go to Romans chapter 13. Sometimes, uh, this chapter is often not talked about in its proper context, but let's, just, let's look at it. I wish we could spend a whole week just on Romans 13, but let's just look at it. 1 through 7. Romans 13, 1 through 7. Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities. Now, the Greek word translated authorities there is exousia. It's not always in our country, in our situation, just a person. It includes people, but, look, but watch. 
For there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority, exousia, resists the ordinance of God, and those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. Well, in what way? What are you talking about? Well, in this way. For rulers, there's where the people are involved. That is specifically talking about people. Verse 3, rulers. Rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. That's what they're supposed to be. They're supposed to suppress evil. Do you want to be unafraid of that authority? Then do what's good, and you'll have praise from the same, right? Then you don't have to worry about it. They said, if you're always honest, you don't have to have a good memory. For he is God's minister to you for good. But if you do evil, be afraid, and he, for he does not bear the sword in vain. There's capital punishment, by the way, biblically uh, justified. For he is God's minister, an avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. Therefore, you must be subject, not only because of wrath, but also for your, the sake of your own conscience. For because of this, and, and so what are some other examples, Paul? Taxes is an example. He's going to say, for because of this, you also pay taxes. For they are God's ministers attending continually to this very thing. I've talked to a couple believers, not very many, who said, I don't think I should have to pay income tax ever. And I say, well, uh, I think Romans 13, 6 would, have, would, take, would differ with you. Render, therefore, all to whom they're due. Taxes to whom taxes are due. Customs to whom customs. Fear to whom fear. And honor to whom honor. So the Greek word translated authorities, exousia, here in our nation, it is a person, but it's not just a person. It's also a document called the Constitution. Listen, that the person in the place of authority swears, in our case, this is somewhat unique, yes, swears to uphold and defend. They are swearing in their oath of office to submit to a higher authority over them, a document. So disobeying them in order to stand for what the document gives to you by its authority is not, in my take, a violation of Romans 13 at all. Again, if it's a clear-cut issue. Not if it's hazy or well, I'm not sure. Regarding authority, we, here's what Scripture would have you do. Number one, pray. Number two, obey. Number three, disobey. Pray, obey, disobey. In other words, we pray. In general, we want to always obey. We disobey if their instruction goes against what God, the highest authority, tells us to do. And again, it's got to be clear. It can't be wishy-washy. Regarding authority, that's what we do. Pray, obey, disobey. Let me show you an illustration of that from Scripture. David, King David, respected Saul while Saul was still king. Did he not? Did he ever hurl an insult at him? Not once. Nope. In fact, when other people did, he took issue with it. He did not comply with everything Saul wanted to do, though, did he? No. He also hid from Saul instead of turning himself in. There was a higher authority, God, who showed David that Saul would not be in authority forever. So David was to respect Saul for the time being, but was not called to blind, unconditional obedience if it violated what God was clearly telling him to do. So I'm going to pray for you. I'm going to obey you as much as I can unless you step over the line and have me disobey God. Then I have to obey God. That would cause me to do number three, to disobey you because you're telling me to disobey God. So we respect authority as much as we can. We do not hurl insults. But we ultimately serve the highest authority. Who's that? God. That's who we ultimately serve, and I think we need to remind ourselves of that. An illustration of that was in the late 90s. Bill Clinton and all the presidents who were alive at the time went to the Bush, not George W. Bush, George H.W. Bush, Bush Sr. The George Bush Library dedication at Texas A&M in the late 90s, I think it was 97. And College Station is a very, very conservative place. I mean, 
you can find the professors on campus might not always be that way, but the town, very conservative. So a lot of these people were here. A lot of, by the way, whose library is it? It's Bush's. So a lot of the Bush um, administration and staffers were there, a little bit more conservative. They're not all huge fans of Bill Clinton, right? I'm not trying to throw Bill Clinton under the bus. I'm, I'm painting a picture for you. At the Bush Presidential Library dedication, all the presidents that were still alive that had been presidents spoke, including Bill Clinton. They all applauded for them before they came up and after they went back down. Bill Clinton, there was some applause, but not the same level that you saw for the other guys. Wasn't the same applause. But you know what you didn't hear? You didn't hear any booing from anybody. They may may sat there like this and not clapped. I'm not going to clap. But you will never hear me boo. Y'all see? No one booed. Uh, Our Aggie version of booing, he knows, what is it? So that's our boo. There was no hissing, there was no booing at all from the crowd. Why? Did they all like Bill? No, they didn't all like Bill. Didn't matter. There's the respect there, and you don't boo. If you don't want to clap, don't clap. But don't you dare boo. Let's go Brandon is another phrase. That speech out of our mouths, I think, is not an option for the church. If you don't know what let's go Brandon means, you can look it up, but I guess be careful because it's, it's pointing to an expletive about our current president. Do I enjoy the way he's leading? No, I don't. But do I still owe him respect where I'm not going to hiss or boo at him or say let's go Brandon? You bet. There needs to be, I can't remember the Greek word that Paul uses in a different passage. It, I cannot remember what it is, but basically in our language it means classiness, dignified, right? I'm not just hurling insults at people. That's not classy. We respect authority and the person in that position of authority. And we look, we pray for him. I need to pray for him. Remember when Obama was president, we signed that deal and we sent it to him in a letter that said, we love you, we're praying for you. And the whole church committed to pray for him as president We respect authority and the person in that position of authority, and we speak and act consistently with our resource of ultimate authority, which is what God says to us in his word, the Bible. Another illustration, ballot harvesting has been a legal maneuver in many states. There's three categories of states. One category allows it. One category only allows it if it's a certain person. We're in that second category, by the way, Texas is. It, it has to be a caretaker. It has, to be, it has to be someone that the state has already defined, their role or their relationship to the voter. Some states, like California, it's just, hey, you can have Jim Bob, go and turn, you know, whoever. And then some states, uh, no, yeah, some states don't say anything about it at all. That's the third group. One state says, it's just Alabama. One state said, and they're, they're by themselves in this, only the voter can turn in their ballot. But basically, there's those three different groups, right? That's called ballot harvesting or ballot collection. It's a legal maneuver in many states that would allow a delivery person of the ballot to commit election fraud, possibly. It doesn't require it. It allows it. So, for example, Calvary Chapel in Chino Hills, California, east of Los Angeles, had a response to this. Again, this is California's in the first category. It's open, fair game. Anybody can turn your ballot in. Led by their pastor, Jack Hibbs, they didn't like how ballot harvesting was being used in some cases, 
but it was the law in their land. It was the law in their state. So they took advantage of it in an honest, ethical way. They did, what they did, they rebranded as ballot collection for the sake of rhetoric, obviously, at their church location, and they, tr- and they had people come in and drop off their ballots, but they tracked and recorded every single step of the process from the handing of the ballot from a voter to a delivery person to the casting of the ballot. In fact, their security and ethics and the way they did this was so thorough and complete, the Fox News channel out of L.A. actually came and covered what Calvary Chapel was doing because they said, show us exactly what you guys are doing. And when they saw the process, they were amazed at how much integrity they had because they wanted it to be above board. This helped to increase voter turnout so much and with so many people who voted biblical principles that this ended up changing California's representation in the U.S. House of Representatives. It was one of the main ingredients, not the only, one of the ingredients in creating an atmosphere in Congress where a Christian who believes in biblical values, Mike Johnson, is now Speaker of the House. Multiple things fed itself into that end up happening, but that was one of the big ones. Churches going, ballot harvesting is legal here? Well, let's do it ethically, and let's get more people out who are going to vote biblical principles, and that's exactly what they did. Local activity matters, is my point. Don't get discouraged. Wisdom is not pessimism. Don't get discouraged when corruption gets a victory. Let me give you another example, an audio example here in a clip. Listen to this same pastor, Jack Hibbs, about the church I just told you about in California. When the California state government was confused in 2020 about where the right to free assembly comes from, they thought it came from government. And so the government can take it away if they want to. But it comes from God who calls us to meet regularly in Hebrews chapter 11, among other places. A right that our founders summarized, freedom of assembly, in the First Amendment to the U.S. Constitution. Listen to Pastor Jack Hibbs talk about what their church did. How does the church respond? Now there's a caveat. When he talks about John MacArthur in this audio clip, there's no video, just audio. So you'll see a blank screen. That's by design. When he talks about John MacArthur, a, friend, a pastor friend of his, who's just down the road, so to speak, also in California, he's not insulting him in any way. He's simply pointing out the difference that's made by applying the gospel to every sphere or every area of life, like we looked at last week, family, church, and government, being salt and light in all three of those spheres. When, pr- when faced with pressure not to meet, during a time when people needed each other in God's words more, not less, in the fellowship of Christianity more, not less, how did the church respond? Listen to this audio clip. It's a few minutes long. We're in a big hall here. I'm sitting here with Jack Hibbs, Pastor Jack Hibbs, Calvary Chapel, Chino Hills. So, Jack, your stance against uh, the uh, unpleasant governor of your state Uh, was heroic, and it really was an inspiration, not just to many other pastors in California, but to many pastors around America. It was kind of a cool thing that to to watch a few people, uh, my friend Pastor Rob McCoy and others, just stand up and say, we are going to do what we think God's telling us to do. We believe we're in a free country. We, uh, We believe the Constitution still is in effect. And so... How did that go for you? In other words, what, what happened uh, in a, in a, at that point? Yeah. So number one is it was exactly the book of Acts where 
we command you not to preach anymore in Jesus' name. Yeah. Well, it was obvious that the disciples wound up saying, look, you guys figured that out on your own, but yeah. for us, we're going to obey God. Yeah, jump in a lake. Yeah, go jump in a lake. Th- that's, yeah. Um, that's if the, you know the original Greek, it, is it says... Lake it, jumpers. It says, please to jump in a body of water. Yeah. So uh, we, we notified the governor. We told the governor what was going to go on and never heard, never heard a peep from him. Uh, we also sent out a video inviting every pastor in California to open their doors to their churches. Right. And so we asked them to do that. And we're happy to report that over 1,200, Eric, pastors opened up their doors uh, and on Sundays and started holding services. And so that's when the fun began. Right. Because then you be, here's the part I'm, I'm going to tell you about that's not often talked about. It just so happens that if you read the Bible... It tells you in First and Second Timothy and in Thessalonians that we as Christians should know who our leaders are. We should pray for those who are in authority over us. Right. We're commanded to do that. Right. So uh, for 30 years, we made it a point to find out from our mayor, city council, our county board of supervisors, how can we pray for you? Right. And even if they were not Christians, we treated them like Christians. How can we pray for you? All that stuff, Eric, over the years caused them to feel indebted to us at the time of crisis. Are you with me? I'm, I'm with you. It was never done intentionally. It was done out of obedience to the word. So you, what you didn't you didn't do this. You didn't do this stuff to bless people 20 years ago because 20 years in the future, cool. there would be a, yeah. a, a, a pandemic. Yes, correct. And you did you did the right thing. Just did the right. And thing. when the time came, these people thought, huh, exactly. This guy and his people have blessed us over and over and over again, that puts us in an awkward position. So when we open up, the mayor, the mayor's office, the city council, the county board of supervisors, they said, listen, if, if you announce this conversation, we'll, we will deny that we had it. But if you get flack from the governor's office, you send it straight to us. Send it straight to us. This is an important thing about politics being local. It just so happens then that the mayor starts attending our church, the chief of police, the chairman of the board of supervisors. You see what's going on? I think I see what's going on. So this starts happening, and then you saw, for example, the tale of two churches. We have always reached out to the elected officials, and we've always taken voter registration. We've always encouraged people to vote, and we always gave out a voter's guide. Yeah. Unlike our good friend John MacArthur in L.A. County, right. he got the snot beat out of him. Why? Because they couldn't tell you who their city council members were. They didn't know. And they they kept now that's, a view of right. two separate entities. Oh, that's the, interesting. The so for you, it's secular. a theological thing. It's not a coincidence. For me, it's theological. For the world is secular, stay away from it. Yeah. We are Christians. We don't intermingle. Right. That's the dark world. This right. is the world of the light. I don't see it that way. How are you going to shine the light and be the salt unless something's dark and something's rotten? So for me, it's a theological thing. Now, God bless Pastor John and Grace Church. The point was this. One county tried to destroy him. One county, as you know, sued them. Thank God they, you know, this county lost. But our county defended us against the governor. Why? We had a relationship that not only led to our protection, but it led to members of our government getting saved during the COVID time. Hmm. Not going to see that on Fox News or any other news channel for that matter. Um, Not most of them. 
the activity of the local church and the prayers of the local church matters. It matters. Our response as the church matters. Now, what if our culture continues to get worse despite your being salt and light in these areas? That does sometimes happen. That can happen. The church, if that happens, the church will not crumble. It actually has the opportunity to to grow stronger and reach even more people when, as the culture around it gets darker, we have the opportunity to shine the light that much brighter. The contrast is made that much more evident between the darkness and the light as the culture gets darker. That's the upside. Overall, that's not pleasurable. I don't wish we had that here, but that's the upside. There's a quote from Erwin Lutzer's book, We Will Not Be Silenced, page 65. He says, There's no doubt that Christianity in America has benefited from the nation's Judeo-Christian roots, but we must learn to survive without this support. If we respond correctly, the church can grow stronger even as our cultural supports grow weaker. Why? Because they are separate entities, the church and the government. We are not dependent on them to thrive. So the health of the government definitely matters, but the health of the church does not depend on the health of the government. Case in point, two of the healthiest churches in the entire New Testament were the two churches that were going through the most suffering coming from the culture around them. Jesus writes them each a letter in Revelation chapter 2 and chapter 3, and although he corrects all other five churches that he writes to in those two chapters, he has no correction for those two churches. Not one thing to say negative about anything that that church was doing because the culture was just weighing in on them with so much pressure, they were just surviving and and their light was shining that much brighter with the darkness being that much darker around them. So application section of your notes. Application. What is our response as the church other than what we've already covered? I've laced application throughout all four weeks and tonight as well. What's our response? Matthew 5, 13 through 16 talks about being salt and light. You've heard that phrase several times. You heard it in that audio clip. Let's look there real quick. Matthew 5, 13 through 16. You are the salt of the earth. Preserve God's character in the culture. If salt loses its flavor, how will it be seasoned? It is good for nothing then except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. Also, he says, you are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill can't be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and then put it under a basket. They put it on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine in this way before men so that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. You see what he says? The response of the church to a culture gone crazy is to be salt, number one, preserves God's character in a culture that wants to corrupt it. Salt is that. It's a pres- it adds flavor. Some people talk about that, but the main idea here is preservative as well. And number two, light. We're called to be light. Shows people what a dangerous path they're headed down without Christ. It illuminates the love of Christ for them so that they can see every angle, every characteristic of the love <clears throat> that they so desperately need. So one of the things we do is to speak and act to be salt and light in the culture. The other thing that we do, or another thing that we do, is pray against any injustice or evil influence in our culture using God's truth, what God says about that situation. If you remember last week, I read Ephesians, uh, I think it was one or two weeks ago, I read Ephesians 6, 
But just want to point out the end of that passage to you one more time. Ephesians 6, 17 and 18 talks about all the armor, but it says this, offensive weapon. Take the helmet of salvation and then the weapon. Take the sword of the spirit. What's the sword of the spirit? It is, he says, which is the word of God. And remember, there's two Greek words for word. Logos, rhema. Logos is the whole message. You might say that's the Bible. The message, the overall theme. Rhema is the particular truth within that theme. So rhema would be, okay, Jesus died on the cross and he's the only way to salvation. That would be a particular truth within this larger message, okay? That's the word he's using here, rhema, the word of God, the particular specific truth. How do I use this truth? Verse 18 tells you how to use it in your prayer life. Praying always with all, it doesn't mean all day so you can't do a job or take care of your kids, okay? It means all the time. Praying all the time with all prayer and supplication in the spirit as the spirit leads you being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. The response of the church, um, your sword is an individual truth in, in God's word that deals with whatever you're praying about, that specific situation. So look, in our nation, we're given a lot. We're given much. We are called to use that advantage, not to feel guilty for the advantage, to use that advantage Guilt is not a good motivator. To use that advantage to be an influence in this culture and every culture around the world of God's kingdom. In this tale of two cities, Babylon versus Jerusalem, that's the tale of two cities throughout the whole Bible. In this tale of two kingdoms, Satan's kingdom versus God's kingdom, which side will you serve? And you have to pick one. Not choosing is choosing the kingdom of darkness because God calls us to prayer and action. So you can't just say, I'm not going to choose. If we love the people all around us in our culture, then we love them enough not to be led astray, to point them in a different direction. And any issue that is legitimate can be healed with God's truth. That looks like you, me, and the Bible. That's what we need to love and reach this culture in the way that it needs to be reached. So homework, very simple. I want you to pray and ask God and seek his voice in the scriptures, right here, to show you what you need to be doing to be salt and light in our culture. Not trying to guilt trip you. Guilt is not a good motivator, remember. If you already have your plate full serving in things. If your plate is already full, your weekly calendar you need to have a down day or at least a significant portion of a day that's a day of rest or a downtime for you. You need to build that in. If you don't have that, you need to build that in. That's God's idea. Hey, if you don't do that, you're going to wreck the car. You know how to run the car for a long, long time and it gets high mileage and it still works great? Have some downtime. If your plate is already full, then I'm not telling you to add one more thing to an already full plate. But we're created to serve and minister. So if you're not, you need to pray about where you should, and it's not where I tell you, it's wherever he wants you to serve. We may bring you the need and say, there's this need, and you think about that, but that's when, ultimately, that's between you and him. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for tonight. I know we've taken a uh, lot of time tonight to go through this, but I, I just thank you for the importance of um, your word, and that it does give us instruction on how to navigate things in this culture. Help us take the principles that are in your word. They're timeless. They apply to all humans throughout all of history. Help us take those principles. And as we're guided by the Holy Spirit you gave us when we were justified in Christ, 
the moment we got saved, we received all of the Holy Spirit through your Holy Spirit. That's your chosen method to help us grow now with your word. Through your Holy Spirit, give us the specific. So your word gives us the principle. The Holy Spirit, moment by moment, gives us the specific application of how to apply that principle in our lives in that particular situation. We pray that um, as we come to you for that guidance, that you would give that to us. Lord, there are so many other real-world illustrations that I could provide tonight for the, church, the church's proper response to culture's assault on Christianity. But for time's sake, we mostly looked at the principles. So, Lord, help us nail these principles down. Um, never let go of them and submit completely to what your word says in these areas. We pray this in Jesus' name, and we thank you that the Bible is not just, not only is it inerrant, it is also sufficient. It's enough. It's what we need to face the cultural issues in this series, Culture's Assault on Christianity. Um, We pray this, and we thank you for these things in Jesus' name. Amen.